0: And he told me something very important that I've never forgotten. And this is coming from a genocide survivor. He said that the most important thing you could have in your life is education. He said, because that is one thing that no one could take from you.
1: Shana Bishlomo Waip Shana and welcome to episode 72 of the Assyrian Podcast. Peter here, and I am excited to be back with you once again to share a conversation that I had with my dear friend Joseph Danavi. Michael Scott from The Office once said, Make friends first, make sales second, make love third, in no particular order. But for reals, I take my friendships seriously, investing the time and energy to cultivate a real connection. I truly believe that iron sharpens iron. And as you'll hear in this episode, social interaction is crucial to our lives. I flew to Chicago on the Thursday evening of Memorial Day weekend to attend the third annual King Ashur Nasser Paul dinner gala at the Oriental Institute in Chicago. The event was hosted by the Assyrian Aid Society Chicago chapter. My first stop post-flight was to Joe's home that he shares with his wife Renya in the West Loop of Chicago. There we shared delicious takeout, Lemon chicken from the popular Greek Islands restaurant? We washed down dinner with unadulterated add-up, but the biggest treat of the night was when Joe turned on his LP turntable and played the nationalistic song "Khazade" by Iwan Agassi via a newly unsealed vinyl record. The interview would take place later on that weekend, on a still Sunday evening, within the confines of an exposed brick room that the Danavis use as an office. Unapologetically, you'll hear a lot about Gishru, the impact it has on both of our lives and of our fellow participants. We'll talk about his personal connection to the Assyrian genocide of 1915, his thoughts on Assyrian advocacy and community empowerment. But what struck me the most were his closing remarks to all of you listeners around the globe. Lastly, support for this podcast comes from Tony Kalagorakis and the Injury Lawyers of Illinois and New York if you know anyone that has been in a serious accident please reach out to tony kalagorakis tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by super lawyers publication and has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards tony can be reached at injuryrights.com or 847-982-9516 and now here's joe Joseph, I want to thank you for coming on this week's episode of the Assyrian Podcast. Basi Marawa Peter. It's always a pleasure to be in your company,
0: but uh, specifically, it's a huge honor to be on the Assyrian Podcast. I really cherish this opportunity.
1: So, Joe, on Gishru's website, and for those who don't know what Gishru is, go into that, explain what Gishru is, but you're listed as the co-founder.
0: Gishru started as an idea of bridging the diaspora, with the homeland. Um, we had seen at the time, it was a tumultuous time in our nation's history. Uh, we had the liberation of Iraq and in, in, the, in the foreshadowing the start of this organization. And so we thought it was ripe for the time to connect our people that have pretty much uh, grown up most of their life, if not their entire life, in the diaspora, to get them connected with the homeland before it's too late. Uh, we all know the theory of, of the melting pot in the diaspora two to three generations before we really start losing our culture. And we thought this was a critical time in our nation to bridge that divide, not only in distance, but also their connection with the homeland.
1: So how many years have you been going as a part of Gishro so my first year, I
0: was in probation. Uh, I did. I wasn't. I wasn't part of the Gishu trip. I was just brought on to provide some advice on how to form this organization. My second year as a Gishu director, it was in 2013 when I was able to first in my life uh, visit the homeland.
1: What year was Gishu founded?
0: It was uh, an idea that was worked upon uh, since 20, 2008, if not mistaken, but. Because we were growing and it was expanding, we became formally an organization in 2012.
1: What would you say to those who observe what Gishru does, you know, by way of social media, Instagram, and let's say all Gishru does is go to the homeland, enjoy themselves for two weeks, and come back home to their comfortable lifestyle? It's difficult,
0: Peter. Truly, it's difficult. Because you're trying to take an experience that is No, no, 4D. You're trying to take a, an ex, an experience that is on so many different dimensions, uh, a, sp- a spectrum of emotions, really a lifetime of, of, of experiences, and try to put it on a social media post, in a picture, a clip. You can't do it. And, and so that's why the closest thing you could get to a snapshot of what we do is just talking to somebody that's been there. Um, because no post, no 140-character, uh, no, no clip can really, truly uh, do justice to what this life-changing experience is. You know, we tell you, I and mean, you—you are with us for the past two years that you embarked on this trip. You know, it really is a roller coaster, and we want it that way. We want you to experience the homeland because that's exactly what it is for our people there too. It's a roller coaster. We have hope, we have pride, but we also have there's disappointments. You know, there's need. Gishu is that crash course, and uh, being an Assyrian in the homeland.
1: Who are some of the partners on the ground that you work with to set up your itinerary, security, logistics?
0: It goes without saying that Gishru would only be an iota, uh, a figment of one's imagination, without the coordination, the support of our partner organizations in the homeland. Prishait is specifically the Caldo Assyrian Student Youth Union, Khuyada uh, they are the largest Syrian student and youth organization in Atra. The Syrian Aid Society of Iraq juggle a lot in in, in North Iraq. Uh, not only do they, as you know, provide charitable distributions, uh, they provide they help restore infrastructure within within our within our areas. But you know, one of their small tasks is they help coordinate our trip. And of course, uh, aid a Syrian Democratic Movement. They really help with the coordination amongst the different governmental uh, agencies in North Iraq. Uh, as you know, it's really fragmented. Just one specific example I have to say is that during our last trip, we were told it would be impossible for our participants to be able to go into liberated Nino Plains because of the strict visa requirements that Iraq does compared to what the KRG. But of course, um, Rabbi, Rabbi Yonadam Kanna was able to get us like an eleventh-hour green light before a trip. Uh, we told our participants that it, it was not—it was tentative. When even my co—my co-partner uh, Susie was telling people, "Just get it out of your minds. We're not going to be able to go see Baghdad." But uh, we had an eleventh-hour green light from Rabi Unadam. He was able to talk to General Jabouri, who was in charge of the Ninua Plain area, and we were able to get in. But this just goes into, you know, how really complex and complicated the. The organization of this trip is because we're so used to dealing with Western procedural protocols. Exactly. Um, and then we kind of we are so used to dealing with that here in our in our in the diaspora. And then we go try to organize this two week trip. It's very daunting because that is not how things work there. So without these partners, it wouldn't be a possibility. We, we, the Gishu would not exist.
1: Why is it that you partner only with the Assyrian Democratic Movement? For, for the listeners out there, the Assyrian Democratic Movement is also known as ZOA. It's because
0: we're selfish, really. Uh, we, we want an organization that's already well-established on the ground. They have connections with government. They have offices or people stationed in all the areas that we go to. So they're really, it's unparalleled. There, there's really no other organization that does that politically besides the Syrian Democratic movement. I mean, they're just uh, ubiquitous everywhere in the homeland. And so if you're an organization that's starting out and you want to take people from the diaspora and you want to make sure this continuity of our uh, partnership in all the areas that we go to, tangible partner, there's simply no other organization. So it's it's simply a logistical issue, yeah. n- nothing political. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that we have not become supporters of the ADM because of what we've seen there but that's a separate topic yeah. what would you say to
1: those participants who have embarked on Gishru's journey what would you say to them who want to go back a second a third time but without Gishru? where where is their place going back to the homeland
0: we want to be that entry the opening experience for them uh, we want to spark that desire. So if you go a second time without Gishu, we've already fulfilled our mission. I mean, not not completely, because we do expect a lot more from our participants than just to go to to Assyria again. But for us, that would be an honor because we want to make it tangible, a tangible idea, uh, something fathomable, that, yeah, I'm going to go to Atra next year. And, yeah, I have a two-week vacation. I'm going to go to Atra. Why not? We We want that to be... Doable something that's that's uh, that's a casual thinking in our in our population, which as you know is not there You know who wants to go on a two-week using their two-week time or one week time of vacation to Assyria Not many people do to us. That's accomplishment, but it goes much more than that We don't want you to go there just for vacation. We don't want you to go there just to visit We want you to do there. We want you to go there to embark on a project we want you to go there to provide to continue that, that hope for our people there. Not only for the people there in, in the homeland, but also for our people here that vie, that vie for a sustainable Assyria.
1: Oh, I want to ask you about your feelings, and I'm going to paint this picture because I experienced it as well. This year going to the homeland, this was my second year. My first year was 2018, and there was a gentleman that I met you know, up here in Nahla, one of the villages, the Assyrian villages in Northern Iraq. A few months before we embarked on the 2019 trip, I find out that he has left. He is, uh, by way of a fiance visa, he has immigrated to Australia, to Sydney, Australia. You've been going back for five, six years. How does it feel when you've met someone years ago and then you come back and you find out that they've left the homeland? It's a complex
0: feeling because first and foremost, I live in the diaspora. It's difficult for me to judge someone that is also going to do the same, even if it's not something that we want, but I cannot judge them. But what it does tell me, and when, when, I, when I go back and I, and I see this loss of our, especially our young people, is that there's a lot of work to be done. These people are leaving because they don't see a future in their homeland. Why is that? for, for a, a, a lot of reasons, there, it's, it's, it's a myriad of uh, different s- situations that, that are causing our people to leave. In the North Plain, when I see people that have left, we know it's from a security standpoint, they don't trust the security services there, be it the, the Peshmerga, be it the Iraqi forces from what happened after ISIS. It's really hard to regain our people's trust uh, when they were abandoned mm-hmm. in, in the, uh, on the onslaught of ISIS. In the northern regions, it's economic. People are, our people are smart. They really do uh, value education. They're the top in their classes. They are remarkable students. But when you're graduating and you're getting top honors and you're unable to get find jobs, and then you're seeing your classmates that are av- of a less caliber than you are, just because they're Kurdish, uh, they're able to get jobs. Yeah, I mean, it makes you lose hope. You know, am I going to be fighting this discrimination for the rest of my life? And then, of course, some of, the, some of the people that we know that have left have children. So they see it in their children. Like, do they want to raise their children in, in a society like that where they're, they're disadvantaged regardless of their capabilities? But it tells me that we have a lot of work to do. Not only for a security standpoint, but also economic uh, and then human rights as well.
1: So there's a huge need. When I came back to America, obviously people are asking me what my feelings were, how I saw the Assyrians there, my interactions with them, the the possibility of one day returning. One of the things that was most hurtful was when I would meet youth in the homeland and they, would, they were surprised that one, I knew how to speak Assyrian, that I, I can decently read and write in Assyrian. That was their surprise. It was hurtful though, it, it's as though Assyrians in the West have either come to the melting pot or they've forgotten about their brethren in the homeland. What is your answer to that? Or what is your response to those Assyrians that live in, in the homeland about Assyrians that are living in the West? Peter, I mean, you, you can't
0: take this personally. I, 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 know, I know what you're saying, that how can they immediately judge anyone from the diaspora as not having you know a good ground a good foundation within a syrian be it the language be it the culture but you have to understand where they're coming from and i i I know you do you know you you, uh, you've been there they they have lost they, they don't have a connection with us they don't they don't have a tangible connection with us in the diaspora even in the the age of of social media you know we don't have a good connection with them period we are in our own world even in our advocacy circles there's new movements within uh within a certain advocacy to this day i'm i it's unfortunate to say that it's still not connected with our people back home we are not on the same page we do not have synergy and this is continuing with our organizations with our advocacy uh, with our advocacy movements uh with our youth groups it's just not connected with the homeland and so coming from them yes they they question and rightfully so, because we have not made that connection with them. And I know we've been talking about Gishru, but this is a great plug, because that's exactly what Gishru is there for, is to fill in that void, to be that bridge. So there, it is synergistic.
1: Joe, when you come back here, coming back from a Gishru trip, and the community is asking you, what did you see there? Who did you interact with? How are our people there? What do you tell them? It's a very
0: simple message, profound, but I, I also have known to repeat myself because, you know, it's a very important message to have uh, our community realize that it's a love that I have never seen before, there's a need that is great, and our window is closing. Three simple points. You will find love there a community, a love from your community that you've never ever seen, even within your own families. A need that is great there because you've seen disasters from millennia on our people there, that we have now become such a fragment of a society there in terms of, again, like we talked about before, in terms of security, in terms of economy, in terms of education. That is the, the, the message I, I relay. But of, of course it's a message of hope as well because these are things that we can fix.
1: Recently I was just having a conversation with an Assyrian gentleman in Chicago. He's been in Chicago for 40 years. In the conversation he said, I have donor fatigue. And this is a reality with some of our people. And I don't, I don't know if it's donor fatigue. It partially is. And I think partially the small, there's a small minority of people in our community that that give. He went on to say that, you know, I have donor fatigue. Why why don't they and when he refers to that he means those that are living in the homeland. Let's just get them out of there. What and and I I couldn't respond to him because I, I probably would have said something very negative mm-hmm. to him. Yeah. And I just couldn't find the words to Respond back to him in a, in a very pleasant way. What is your comment to that? Is this a sentiment that you think people share that let's just get them all out of there? Well,
0: it's it's not just that it's I mean you taught you touched upon donor fatigue and I, I mean I, I would see it more as a distraction Right. Uh, I, I think it's donor distraction you know, we, and it's, it's based on not having, I mean, I keep going back to the same message, but it's, it's important to repeat, it's, it's okay to be redundant when, 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 it's, when, it's, when it's a message that speaks the truth, is that, you know, we don't have, a lot of our community does not know what's going on in the homeland. So it's donor distraction. I mean, when you're getting pummeled from every side of people asking for money, and of course, sometimes it is, I mean, most of the times it is for a for reasonable cause, but it's also a side effect. It's also also a symptom of us not being synergistic. You know, like our com- our organizations are not talking to each other, our communities are not connected. You know, we have this divide amongst this generation between those that live in the homeland and those that live in the diaspora. And I even said before that you know Gishu is also a bridge amongst the diaspora as well. You know, we are divided in the in the diaspora. So this donor fatigue, this donor distraction, is just a symptom. Of us not being uh, connected and we're not collaborating, we have we're all living in our own ivory towers and we all think our organization is important and there is an elitist type of sentiment amongst some of the advocate uh, in the advocacy circles as well. So yeah, I mean it's again, it's not their fault, right? Uh, it's it's our job and and you touched upon our people leaving and better for them just to leave and that just. They have not seen the homeland. I don't think there's one person that has seen the homeland, that's experienced the homeland, that said, yeah, let's just get everyone out there. No, th- our, our land is so beautiful. And you know what's even more beautiful than our land? Our people living in, there, in our land there. And, it, it, and when you see that site, when you go to Bedouin, and, and you see our people living there, uh, it, it gives you that tangible history of what your grandparents looked like when they were there. And it's something that you want to preserve and you want to
1: continue. How do you feel about the, the diaspora, this generation, especially in the United States, because you and I live in the United States. Do you, do you see as language being threatened? Do you see, is there a lack of empathy out there? I
0: don't think we see anything original within our community in terms of this threat of assimilation. Uh, I don't think we're immune to what the Irish... Uh, or the Italian, uh, when, 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 when they first came over into this country, if we take a look at what's happened to their descendants, we can see that they're very much well assimil- assimilated within the American culture, um, and very little of them know, besides having maybe Italian-sounding or Irish-sounding last names, uh, they don't speak the language, uh, or, very, or they know very little of it, and when they when they go to go visit italy they're just like us you know tourists not really connected uh to to, to their what was once a homeland so uh, yeah our, our future is not original i mean if we in, in the diaspora if we continue th- uh this way um i don't i, I don't really, i think the forces of the of uh, assimilation in the west is far too great for any community especially ours as this small to fight
1: how can we curb assimilation
0: having living roots in the homeland. I think us having living roots in the homeland and making sure it has a future there could at least provide hope for our nation. If we don't have a land, which is ours, if we don't have school systems, which which are ours, if we don't have a de facto government, which is ours, it makes this very,
1: very difficult to have a nation Uh, because we know what the threat is of assimilation in the West. When you come back from Gishul, and you've gone many times, what are the top three pressing projects or top three takeaways that you have, you know, where when you come back and you talk to people here, and they ask you, what is the biggest need? What? Give me the top three biggest needs. It's hard
0: when you have top, if you have a hundred, yeah. it's hard to pick and, three because every one of them is so important. But I'm gonna give a little bit of an uplifting side of it, and not just to make it more, not not to just make a positive point out of this, but something that's very, I think, is extremely crucially necessary for 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 us as a community. I, I I really think the most important thing is us having a stronger connection. I know it sounds cliche, but it's not. We need to connect with our people in the homeland. I think that's the that I think that's number one. We need it, and they need it, and our nation needs it. And I think that also spurs a lot of collaboration. Projects are in sync with, with their needs, and it's not top-down, but it's bottom-up, and it provides a good outlook on, on, on our future. So, yeah, I think one of the biggest needs actually is not a monetary thing. It's not a resource thing. It's just a connection. We need, we need, we need a strong, stronger connection between us two two and three i think kind of fall in line is just economic economically are the people there need jobs assyrians I mean, need, need jobs in the homeland be it in the nindo plain or in the KRG, where the majority of our people do live right now in iraq economic opportunity is is very difficult to come by and that's for a, a, all assortment of reasons and it's not just specific to our people um, it's just how uh, the government is after the the after the crisis with ISIS and the massive re, uh, rebuilding of Mosul and Ninewa Plain. It just it's our people are falling to the cracks. So uh, and also in the KRG where there's discrimination going on against our people. The
1: KRG being
0: the Kurdistan Region government. Yeah, I mean, there's active discrimi- discrimination against our people there for, for finding jobs. Uh, and as you know, I mean, as you know, but maybe our, the audience does not know, is that close to 80% of all Iraqis work for the government. So the government is the main job source mm-hmm. for people. So when there's active discrimination within the government, you can see how difficult it is yeah. for a certified to find
1: job. Tell me about where you were born and raised. Chicago, Illinois. Where I was specifically born specifically chicago i mean was there a neighborhood
0: was well yeah i mean i i grew up i mean i was born in chicago but as most suburbans try to do and we just say we're from chicago but yeah. specifically skokie i grew up in skokie for part of my childhood mm-hmm. the rest i uh my my dad was transferred to the netherlands uh holland uh so we lived there for a couple of years and then we were fortunate to return back and, back to Chicago and we lived in the uh I li- grew up in the Palatine neighborhood at that point okay
1: so growing up in Skokie obviously you're surrounded by an Assyrian community mm-hmm. yeah. civic social religious yeah how, how was that growing up with with so many Assyrians around you
0: I had a very big family uh even if we weren't related you know it's it's that it's it's one of the hallmarks of being Assyrian is that no matter where you are if you see another Assyrian it you know, it's, they're, they're your family. And so growing up in Skokie, like everyone was family. I was calling everyone my cousins when I was growing up, when I was a little kid, I know I, I had no idea if they were our cousins or not. They, I consider everyone my cousin. It was, it was,
1: it's a really nice, nurturing environment to grow up in. I think every, in my opinion, every Syrian activist, there's a moment in their life where they decide or they take it upon themselves to work for the nation, and each to his or her own. At what point in your life did you realize that you need to take this calling upon yourself? When I was in university, for sure. And it
0: was a more of a comparative kind of analysis type of coming to terms with what we needed as a nation. I saw how the, the Jewish community at my university was so advanced. They had a, a strong civic organization on campus. Another thing, they had a return to their a homeland trip that was fully subsidized and paid for by philanthropists in their community. And so seeing this firsthand at, the, at, uh, at a university level, I realized the great need that we have in our community, but also something that didn't have to be original, because you know other communities are doing it, so we, we just need to emulate it. Right. That's and so about
1: innovating on an idea. Yeah, I mean, or, or tailoring it to our community's needs.
0: Exactly. It's seeing something else that's going that, that's positive in another community and being like, yes, we could also apply this to our own community. Not everything has to be original. Not every innovator is original. They're taking their ideas from something, you know, either from nature, you know, or, or some other parallel um, environment. So, same th- for us, it's easier. I mean, look how many other diaspora based communities are there. And what they're doing yeah. and what we could do to do it and apply it for our own people and so I was at the university I saw what this community was doing and I was like let's do this for our own community I mean it, we don't have to be original where did you go to college University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign you
1: were involved
0: in student government there yes I was yes <laughs> what was your role there Uh, I was an elected student senator for the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences.
1: Has that position, that role, did that help you become who you are today?
0: I don't think it helped me become who I was. I think I've always been a service-oriented individual. You know, I always wanted to be in a position to provide service, to help. You know, that's what drew me into medicine as well. Um, And so I think I did the student senate not because I I was I used that to help me in my career or for my you know my uh, volunteer work or with Gishru. But I think it just, it's just always been an innate part of me to provide service. So it was a a way to to give back to my student, my fellow students.
1: Were your parents actively involved in the student community? Is that something that they instilled in you growing up?
0: Yeah, uh, my 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 dad. My mom has always, obviously, t- taught us our mother mother tongue. You know, my my parents really drilled that into us as a as as, as young kids uh, the importance of language. Uh, but my dad was, was involved in his in his earlier years within specifically within the Chicago community with the uh, Syrian National Council of Illinois and and with the council for the church as well.
1: At what point did you realize that you wanted to
0: get into medicine? You know, there's a YouTube video floating out there of me. <laughs> that's, it's
1: not YouTube. I think it's Facebook, and I, I, I think I'm gonna try to include that in the episode, yeah, because it's something hilarious. Yeah, about. but I'll, I'll let you describe it. And yeah. Well, I'll, I
0: was five years old, and uh, it was my f- fifth year, fifth birthday, and my brother, uh, my, my dad was asking everyone that was attending the my birthday party uh, what they wanted to be older, and I was, I said I wanted to become a doctor. But I, I think because I, I, I saw them as, as role models as growing up, you know, going to see my pediatrician, some of our family friends that that, that are doctors, I saw them as role models, and um, and I wanted to become like them. During this pursuit at a young age, I realized you know how much I, I enjoyed interacting with people. You know, I'm a, I'm a people person, and I also like I said earlier, I'm a serv- I'm very service oriented, and I think that kind of it was really easy to continue with a challenging path of becoming a physician. Mm-hmm.
1: What is something that scares you?
0: Losing the homeland. And I mean that in every possible definition of it. You know, be it exodus, be it leaving in
1: droves, not having a future. Do you think Gishru has the capacity to do a, a Gishru 2.0 for <laughs> medical professionals who want to serve one, two, three week clinics? on the ground? Is that something that you think Gishru can take the load or is this something where you need another organization to help coordinate? It's
0: it's our philosophy, Gishru, and, and personally as this is this is my belief as well, is that you know we should do things that's within our realm. And do that to the best of our abilities. And if we're unable to do it, then we should have other people come in to do it. And, you know, what, what you said is very important. We need more initiatives in the homeland uh, coming from the West. Not because we're, we are um, better than they are or, um, you know, they, you know they, they need a model from, uh, for us to do it. It's, again, it's all part of that collaboration. There's a great need there and we have the resources that, that we could um, uh, utilize to, to help the situation on the ground there. So yes, there's a need for mobile clinics and mobile pharmacies, but Gisho right now is focusing on making this kind of crash course for our, our youth and young professionals, uh, but there's a whole consortium of ideas that need to go on in the homeland, and I think you know we need to find the right people to do it. Mm-hmm. But right now we, we don't have plans because we're still trying to perfect our own, our own trip and our own experiences. But I mean, Peter, we, we could we could have an entire episode just talking about uh, all the things that that, need, that needs to be done. Again, none, none of them are original. Yeah. You know, you just have to look at Armenia and Israel. I think those are the two closest countries. Right. Case that, yeah that 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 really that we could learn a lot from. Because they've already, they've had this before and they've overcome it. I I, I think there's nothing wrong to to learn from these communities and apply their their solutions that they've been able to come up with for our own case.
1: How do you as Joe Danavi stay sane? Do you have a morning routine or do you practice mindfulness? What keeps you going? Because you, obviously you are busy in your professional life. You're a cardiology fellow and you have extracurricular activities within the community, within the Assyrian community. I think, as busy
0: professionals, all of us, I think it's it's really important to have time for the with the family. I think everyone's family is that like recharge uh, station. Not only is it good for yourself personally, but you're also connecting with, with the people that love you unconditionally. And so, yeah, so my outlet and my sanity is, you know, hanging out with my parents, hanging out with my brother and sister, my nephew, look forward to seeing them on the weekends. That's what kind of brings me down. Avoiding to, you know, neglect some of the most important things in our life, it's our family. Mm -hmm. Uh, No matter how busy you are, uh, no matter how successful you become, the last thing you, you, you need you, you should do is neglect your family, and when you do you'll you'll find that you may become insane <laughs> to say the least.
1: I'm glad you brought up family. you and I are very close friends. We've known each other for at least, I want to say, a little less than fifteen years or so. Throughout the years you've shared with me, and I've even had the pleasure of meeting your your <laughs> your grandfather. <laughs> and he by way of you, you told me stories of his experience of the the genocide, the Assyrian genocide, and the impact it's had. And he lived a long life. Yeah, we we're fortunate. How, how much of an influence was he on your life? What was his influence on your life? Yeah,
0: he he had he had an amazing amazing influence on in my life. I mean he was he was my he was my connection before Gishu to the homeland. He was the tangible connection to the good things of our history and some of the most horrific things in our history. And he was it was embodied in one person, you know. And so I learned so much from him, what what he went through and his family went through during the genocides you know, of 1915, you know, he was five years old at the time mm-hmm. uh, when it started and then what he, well, what he had gone through, the perseverance within Iraq, you know, within the creation of modern-day Iraq, uh, and the hope that he had to stay there. And then he saw that, you know, there's so much discrimination that he didn't see a future for the kids. He had this, this love for Assyrian research. As a young kid, I would remember going to visit him, and he, had, he would just be sitting amongst the shelves of books, reading, writing everything about Assyrians. And I think that really had a big effect on me. Yeah. That I know that this guy has seen the worst things that happened in our nation. Mm -hmm. And he was able to still continue with his passion. That that genocide did not take that away from him. Yeah. And he told me something very important that I've never forgotten. And this is coming from a genocide survivor. He said that the most important thing you could have in your life is education. He said, because that is one thing that no one could take from you. Sure. they could take all your, they could take your house they could take all your belongings um, they could strip you of your degrees they could strip you of jobs and everything but they can never take you they can never take away what you've learned and mm-hmm. education and I and and, the, and and that really kind of propelled me through my heart my toughest points in medical school and training is that I'm doing this for a cause that it will be with me forever right sure. uh, no one can take that away from me Yeah. But yeah, I mean, he and and unfortunately, his story is just a cycle, right? I mean, all our families have gone through that genocide, especially us in the diaspora, exodus, leaving, and then we're seeing the cycle again repeat. Now there's more of my grandfather's now in Syria, in Nino Plains. People like my grandfather, 1915 occurred again
1: in 2014. Right, with ISIS.
0: With ISIS and 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 especially in Syria and Nino Plain. So
1: that cycle is just repeating. Do you see yourself, and I, I know that you say the only, the only hope for our nation is to sustain the roots that we have. One way of sustaining roots is to have a reverse exodus. Do you really believe that, that there could be a reverse exodus, perhaps with this generation?
0: Well, we have two people already, I mean, from Gishru to proudly stay like Susie Yonan and Melinda Khobiyar, they're in the homeland. Mm-hmm. They're working there. They're living and working there.
1: Yeah.
0: Melinda, born in the U.S. She's living her prime years in Atra. So I think it's, of course, it's possible. Again, it's all about the perception of having a future. Once people have that perception, yes, I could live here. Yes, it's someplace I could raise a family. Of course, why not? This is your homeland. Why would people not want to go there? It's a beautiful, beautiful country. Take everything about nationalism out of this. Mm -hmm. It really is a beautiful country. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's scenic. I mean, you have the Alps there, right? You know, you have a beautiful valley there. You have everything. It's a gorgeous country, and it's yours. Yes, the, the, the situation there is not the best, but it's improving, and we have a large part to do with it that we could help. So yeah, I mean, I I think you know there there there, there can be a return, and again I, we don't have to be original. There's other communities that have done the very same. Mm-hmm. Just a few countries over in Israel.
1: Earlier this year in January, you, me, and Elmer Dr. Elmer Abbo embarked on a trip to London, and the trip was mainly to go see the Ashurbanipal exhibit at the British Museum. As you're walking into the exhibit, and I believe was it your first time at the British Museum?
0: No, I have been
1: there when I was younger. As you're walking in and gazing at the Ashurbanipal reliefs, give us a kind of an introspective look into your feelings, your emotions, things that you're seeing for the first time, the amount of respect that these people have, and the amount of work that has gone into this this exhibit.
0: It's it's bittersweet, you know. I don't think those I think the best place for those, uh, for those artifacts is in the homeland. It's a colonial thing. you know. They basically took everything out of our countries and display it there. But at the same time, it's bittersweet because without their excavations and preservations and housing them in a much more stable environment, they might have been lost forever. We saw what happened to Nimrod in Inuit when ISIS destroyed it, reduced it to rubble. So yeah, walking through there, I, I, it was a lot of those kind of feelings swirling around me. But overall, just again, it's looking at the grandeur of a history and the responsibility that falls upon all our shoulders to con- to make sure this nation continues and persists. Mm-hmm. I mean, those were definitely our glory days and they're very, very long ago. And I think every Syrian is always proud. You know, they take their friends or they, Tell them about the the um, all the achievements and the accomplishments and, and the grandeur of, of of Assyria. Sure, I'm I'm proud of that, and you're proud. We, we all could be. We all we all should be proud. But I I think the bigger question is what are we doing now to uphold that pride? You know, what are we doing now for this nation to continue? Mm-hmm. Because I'm sure our our, our ancestors would, would want it to.
1: Yeah. What's something people seem to misunderstand about Joe Danabi?
0: I think it depends where or who you're asking why is that I think I think when we're in atra, I think it's me that's not, not speaking the best of Syrian. um there's a lot of, sometimes there's some miscommunication. Yeah. I try my best and like read and write like maybe like a third grade level, mm-hmm. but yeah it's definitely it's different based on what i mean i'm I'm Joking, but essentially, in Atra, it's completely different than what it is here. But I think for our listeners, um, I think the biggest mis- misconception, at least, is that you know I'm a, I'm a full time activist. Yeah. And I think that really is a description for a lot of our a lot of our activists. I think we're all full time engineers, full time cardiologists, for full time you know, marketing specialists um and giving and using our free time for advocacy. What are you curious about right now? Buying land in a house in Ankawa. <laughs> you know, especially from our last from our just our recent trip. You know, I've been thinking about that ever since I left. Yeah, I, I'm I'm really curious about it. I really want to. You know, and we, we had that that panel that talked about investments and property purchase in Iraq and in our, in our Atra, so I've I've been thinking about that ever since because we really need to start going to the second step. Okay. You know, we we've, we've been I've been to Atra f- five times already. You know, how much more times am I going just as a visitor?
1: Yeah, I think one thing that I noticed when I was there is that people people talk about from from the West. I can let's let's go start a business there. I want to go start a business there. But from just from going two times to visit, I feel as though, and correct me if I'm wrong, I feel as though the person who is proposing that business needs to be on the ground, operating on the ground. It's not this thing where from a distance or proxy, at least in the beginning, to get the business up well, and running. I also
0: think it's based on scale. It's mm-hmm. the scale of your business. I mean, are you running a mom-and-pop shop like a restaurant, or are you, you know, already have a pretty well-established business in the diaspora and you want to start running it there as well. So I don't think necessarily you have to be there. And don't forget, you have Assyrians living there. They could always be your extension in the homeland, your business opportunity. So yeah, I mean, it, it, all, it all depends on the scale of, of, your, of, your, of your business. But, you know, it's definitely an opportunity and I don't think many students have taken that as we've seen
1: I know some of our Chicago listeners will relate to this I try to visit Chicago during the summers but when I when I do come here I see I see billboards outside of Jewish synagogues signs I think it's three percent four percent five percent it's it's some sort of tithing back to the community back to the motherland it's it's their
0: uh, will Okay. Yeah, it's, it's, so they're basically advertising for uh, um, their community to put in their will uh, when they pass to leave a percentage of their estate to the Jewish fund. Yeah. To, to, to causes. Yeah. Uh, if there's a concerned effort within our community, I think that's totally doable. You know, we could easily do that. Again, it goes back to the thing of us not having to be original. You know, I, mean, I think that's a great observation that you made and a possible Im- implementation with our community. You know, it goes without saying that we need to be collaborating on this as a community as a whole. So this, this requires our churches, our civic institutions, our organizations all to come together and be like, yes, you know, we need to have this general fund. Uh, where we'll use to not only send back to the homeland, but also build up our institutions here. I think that I think that would be great But again, I think it requires us to much, to be much more Collaborative as
1: a community mm-hmm. I want to go back to the topic of Gishra Although I've known you for many years. I know you're a doctor I personally don't want to talk medicine with you because I, I think that Joe Denavi is medicine is your, your vocation Right? You identify with medicine as being your vocation, your everyday. Yeah, of course. But that does not define who Joe Danavi is. A part of me. <laughs> it's it, a part of you. Yeah,
0: it, it describes a part of me, correct.
1: When, when people ask me, what is your favorite part about the trip? And by trip, I mean the two weeks we spend on Gishul, I always tell them that it's the schools. Mm. When when you how do you feel when you walk into the schools that are teaching every subject the majority of subjects they have courses in English and Arabic like the actual language itself not subject courses how do you feel walking into listening and reading curriculum that is all in Assyrian
0: our future is very bright that that's what I think of our future is very bright. Mm. And they'll be better leaders than than, than we are. <laughs> those schools really is is a is our window into our future. Yeah. So once those schools cease to exist, or we don't have any kids filling those chairs, or, I mean, those desks, then then we know we don't have a future. As long as those seats and and uh, those desks are filled, we have a future. So right. yeah, yeah, so that's what I feel like.
1: What is one question that I should have asked you that I have not asked you up until this point?
0: Hmm. <laughs> is there anything besides Gishu that you do?
1: <laughs> so far it's been like 90% Gishu. I know. I know, but I feel as I, part of the reason is, is that we, we have connected on different paths of our lives, you know? Obviously both of us know each other but our friendship I don't want to say flourished or grew but then we were able to experience the homeland together. Mm. So yeah. maybe that's why it's not some sort of No, problem. I'm
0: honestly I'm honored. I mean yeah. if 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 they just know Joe as Gishu I'm, I'm I'll be a very very happy person because it's such a it's such a great um great program that that we implemented and it's it's actually it's not innovative it's not innovative at all like i mean other communities have done this program and just we found a need in our community because it wasn't being done to do it but yeah i'm i i'm i'm more than honored that, that you considered this as a Gishu interview <laughs> yeah i don't know if you
1: i don't know if this is a softball or this is a this could be a good plug actually for for what's to come yeah tell me about the Assyrian policy conference that happened in Washington DC Last year mm-hmm. and then tell me about the upcoming policy conference that you are that was postponed, but that you're currently working on
0: yeah, so you know, going back to the question that I wanted you to pose me, what what other things do you do besides I guess you're uh, within the communities is I, I serve as the chair of education for the Syrian American National Federation, the Syrian national policy conference even though it's a product of the Syrian American National Federation, it is exactly what we were talking about earlier, about getting our communities to be in synergy. Having a conference in DC so we could amplify the need in the homeland while training the next generation's leaders. I mean, that's essentially what the Syrian National Policy Conference is, is getting our advocacy in sync with the homeland, building up the diaspora, and training the next generation of leaders. Because the entire policy conference is education. People are learning about the the issues going on in the homeland, the potential solutions, hearing from academics in our community. And the most critical point of the conference, because without this component, this conference could be done anywhere. But the reason why it's done in D.C. is to teach civic responsibility and engagement With your elected officials, with our elected officials, and in a way that's persuade that that that's uh, you're able to persuade them. So Mm -hmm. succinct, uh, persuasive, kind of like what we call the the elevator pitch. Uh, You know, because these people have very short attention spans. Not because you know they're not interested in our issues, but you have to imagine there's hundreds of other people doing the same thing to them on a daily basis.
1: When you talk to electeds. At the, the federal level, congressmen, congresswomen, members, senators, what is the ask? What is the dialogue?
0: You always want something simple. Like, you don't want to make things very complicated. So you, you want to do a simple, some, something that's achievable. It's kind of like the low-hanging fruits. You want something that, 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 that's within their jurisdiction. So our previous ask last year was asking them to join the Syrian Caucus. That's something that's easy. It's doable. Doesn't have that many responsibilities. You know, just getting them to be part of an Assyrian caucus. One of our other asks was to provide oversight to U.S. aid to make sure the money, the billions of dollars that U.S. aid is spending in Iraq, is going to the right people, and and that's especially important since there's a, there's a high degree of corruption within Iraq. And our ask was having them provide oversight and giving them explanation on that. This money should be going to local organizations, local NGOs on the ground that are operating of our people. So those were the asks for, for last year's AMPC. St- uh, we're still working on that uh, on, on the agenda for, for this year's. What was the attendance like last year?
1: What was the energy? What was the vibe? What was the feedback? I mean, imagine a, a room,
0: not a room, it was a lot many rooms, but imagine uh, an, an arena filled with like-minded individuals. People that are deeply in- interested in the future of our nation that are willing to come all the way to D.C., learn about all the issues facing on the homeland and advocating for it. I mean, these are people that are just like yourself. And so, yeah, it's, it's a very po- powerful, a very powerful conference, not only because of the program, but because of the individuals that participated and we, and we want that to grow. And and that's and that's American and that's the Syrian American National Federation for you. But It really has come a long ways from what it was before. You know, I'm I'm not talking about from when it's first started, but I'm talking about for the past twenty years. There's a, definitely a new generational shift within the Syrian American National Federation towards quality programming that's in sync with the homeland.
1: What is one thing that you failed at? Stopping the infighting. What was that?
0: Stopping the infighting
1: within our community.
0: Not our community, but, but within, our com- within our community's activists
1: and organizers. We're all working towards one goal. Yeah,
0: we are. I mean, I think the vast majority, I mean, I can't say that. I think nearly everybody that's an Assyrian activist in the diaspora believes in the same thing. Maybe the details may differ, but the end result is the same. You know, the goal, the goal that we're striving for is the same. But unfortunately, our disagreements are always based on that one or two percentages of, of fine detail that's causing the hurdles amongst us.
1: What would you say to some, some of our Assyrian academics, advocates, intelligentsia, people that want to get involved for the cause? What would you say to them who are on the sidelines, that are looking from the sidelines, that want to get in or don't or are hesitant?
0: Come on, Gishru, Ex- experience the homeland. You'll get to experience it with people that are just like yourself. They really want to help the, our nation. They don't know which way yet. They don't know with whom yet. And that's why we have this trip. Mm-hmm. Because not only do you find out the why, what, when, how, but you also, fi- more, most importantly, you find out the who. And that is not only people that you want to help the, in the homeland, but also who you want to work with you know this is a two-week experience you really really get to know people very well yeah because it's such a vulnerable time
1: very much so vulnerable in terms of the group your emotions
0: Yeah. you're seeing some things for the very first time
1: close quarters it's, yeah there are times that are uncomfortable
0: yeah so I, I would say if you're on the sidelines and you want to join and you want to help and you don't know how to do it come on Gishu for two weeks it could, it's like a baptism, you know, you're going to, you, you'll feel a renewal, you'll find answers for some questions that you may, you, you, you have been pondering about for, for most of your life. And it cuts and it cuts through all the noise and the, and the distractions in, 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 in our communities at yeah. large, the things between our civic organizations our churches or that, that all just becomes kind of just fades in, into the background because that big, big picture finally comes in 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 plain plain sight you really realize what what's important and you're thankful to forget those things that are not important yeah that may have been consuming or causing some drama
1: i think for for me and i have mentioned this before but there's a there's a song that asher baserge sings you want to sing it for us no no. (laughs) I'll, i'll do that another time for for my beloved listeners those who like me as a co-host, but the the song Yasara is, is is a song about the singer, the poet is singing about the diaspora. He sees the moon, the moon is greeting him, and the singer is asking the moon how his village is, how his homeland is, how his friends are, how his family is, and how his house is. And so I would li- I would listen to the song. يا صار امك يا طيلوخ ادها اطرد اخي ابن طيبه يا زاتوخ كمن مغنيه صليت
0: خبق النوغ بصدري هالرقديه باردلي من خش دبشته كالاخلي تيد مختايا رشته مامطيلي يا تخو بدش مشوف خد قلبك يخنشها بيردرى مشوف pre
1: gishro and it was black and white and then i mean I, the song was amazing but then you I went to Iraq, and then I heard the song, and then I sang the song there, and it has a whole new meaning to it. get like it, it, you are one, you are one with the singer, with the poet, because you you really understand the struggle that the poet went through to craft mm-hmm. the song, and the the style and the emotion that Ashur Levit put in to singing the song, and so by you saying that. If there's someone on the sidelines to come on this trip, to me, I I, I could definitely affirm that, that if there's someone on the sidelines and this, this is the trip for you. And I know this episode is like a gushul plug, but essentially this is the Assyrian podcast and our, at least my goal is to reestablish a bigger Assyrian presence in Northern Iraq. Start a reverse exodus.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's all a responsibility. It's, and, and it's it's so gratifying too. I mean, it's it's a huge relief, like when, when when you go and experience it.
1: Hypothetically, you have a year sabbatical. If you can write any book, any topic, any subject, what would it be on that year sabbatical?
0: Sabbatical? Any like time off? Minshula? Yeah. Well, I would need you to talk to my program director uh, to get a sabbatical in the first place. Uh, <laughs> but if I were to get a sabbatical which is n- non-existent uh, with, within any training program. I mean I of course I mean I'm an activist at heart. So it would be something about Assyrians and it would it would be within my philosophy is that two things one that we don't have to be original or creative to be innovative for our community. And two we need to do a better job of infiltrating NGOs, um, government agencies
1: for the betterment of our community. Uh, so those,
0: those I would, I would, it would be a book about those
1: two things. Can you expand on NGOs for listeners? Like, like what they are? What they are, their function, what the acronym stands for?
0: Yeah. So non-governmental organizations. There are uh, there are many powerful non-for-profit organizations that have. That receive millions upon millions of dollars uh, from from the government to basically distribute uh, in the, in the form of aid. Again, not all NGOs are the same. I'm I'm just talking about specific to our to our um, to our situation uh, right now in the Nino Plain. And I I think one um, idea um, that we should be sharing amongst our community is, you know, these are really good jobs to have, you know, even as a career, mm-hmm. you know, and you could make such a huge difference for your people as, as, as a coordinator of one of these NGOs, you know, instead of us spending all this money and time on lobbying, which for the past, you know, 20 years that I've seen have gone absolutely nowhere, uh, such a waste of time and effort, you know, imagine if we spent all this time and effort into getting um, young Assyrians into these NGO offices, into governmental agencies. Uh, imagine what impact that could have had have on our people. And so, I, I, I think we need to do this sh- this, this shift uh, from begging uh, to infiltrating.
1: Get I like, in. I like that they used, you use the word infiltrating.
0: Yeah, maybe you shouldn't use that when you're applying for these positions. <laughs> but but essentially, get into these. Um, in, into, in, into this career, into yeah. this not-for-profit career, you know, you, you, you get to help out. I mean, there's nothing better than doing what you love as a career. And so if you're able to help out your community and get paid for it, why not?
1: Absolutely.
0: And and, and, it's, and it's not like you're, you know, you're doing a charitable deed, you know. You're getting paid.
1: Especially listeners out there that have a background in public policy, international development, humanitarian studies foreign policy foreign affairs even law law psychology yes and NGOs in Iraq are hiring don't let a language barrier like Arabic or Kurdish deter you from applying because both of both Susie and Melinda don't know Arabic or Kurdish mm-hmm. right
0: exactly yeah yeah no but but this is something that we should be we should be pushing in, in, in our community yeah, we want all our kids to become doctors and engineers. But really, I think this is even better than that. You know, getting involved in these NGOs and these governmental agencies around the world that are focused on essentially giving aid to into the into the Middle East, you can make a huge impact. Not only for your own career, but also for our people. Yeah, because we finally have an advocate inside. It's so much better than trying to be on the outside, on the outside and knocking on good. doors, just like. Everyone else is that's, just trying to. And looking at our own history, we've not been successful ever.
1: Joe, we have listeners from all over the world. What are your last words? What wisdom would you like to impart? What advice, encouragement?
0: Speaking on my own, from my own experience, it'll be find a partner. I think, I think that's so important. It's in anything in life. I, uh, I truly believe humans, we are a very social being, um, and we thrive uh, in, in a social environment. And I've seen myself, after I found my own partner, uh, Renya, that my productivity for our community, and it's not only for our community, even in my career, has been so much better. You know, she's been such an amazing, positive influence on my, on my life i i i say she's really my stunni, my, my my foundation uh, and and i i to her you know I'm not, I'm not i'm i'm not trying to take all the credit but but i mean but it's 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 mutualistic yeah and 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 i truly i if if i could if i could give a lasting advice is really find your partner i think that's so important uh and especially in this day and age especially when we try to be these multitaskers, which humans are horrible multitaskers, sure. you know, we're all trying to carry all these different hats on. It's nice to have someone with you uh, at all times, kind of giving you continuous feedback. And so it's been a life—it's—it's it's been a life changer for me. The—the the best decision I've made. It's also for our community. Uh, Gishu has been so much better <laughs> with us on, on it, and hopefully you as well.
1: Thank you. Uh,
0: and then of of course, um, Pied. The last thing, the most important thing is experience you. It really could open a lot of doors for you. It, it opened a lot for me.
1: Well, I appreciate your time. Thanks again for being on the Assyrian Podcast.
0: Thank you, Peter. It's always a pleasure to talk with you on and off the microphone.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Assyrian Podcast. If you like what you are hearing, please subscribe and review us wherever you listen to us. You can also help us by spreading the word about the Assyrian Podcast to your family and friends. Thanks and see you all next week.